Welcome to episode 144 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. How are you? What's going on in your world, Tony? Tell me. What is going on with you? You know, I'm getting ready for the beach. It's just, yeah. I, I'm in like, I can feel like the weight of my my day-to-day life, like starting to ease up a little bit. I've wrapped up a couple big projects at work that I need to finish up before I went on vacation. So I'm kind of getting ready to coast right into the beach in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. You are far more prepared for that experience than I am. Yeah, I would ask our listeners to pray for our vacation, but by the time they hear this, we'll already be done with our vacation, but I'm pretty stoked. Yeah, it's going to be good times. Yeah. What about you? How are you doing? That's weird. I'm doing all right. I'm just looking forward to a great conversation with you. This is one of the highlights of my week. I thought you were going to say more, so I took a drink of my beer, and <laughs> then you like stopped, and it was this weird pause. It was this weird awkwardness. Thanks, Jesse. You're, you're very... Very, very welcome. So hopefully this is like, dare we say, maybe this is the highlight of other people's weeks too, is like hearing us just talk at each other. I hope so. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that really enjoy it, but I wouldn't, I don't know if anybody says it's like the highlight of their week. Well, we got to step up our game then. So let's like get it on with some affirmations. And this week we decided like in our pre-production meeting, which consists of about 10 seconds (laughs) of you and I chatting before we hit the record button. That we decided we're going to switch it up per your recommendation and just do affirmation, affirmation style this week. Yes, we're going to have some affirmations and affirmations. Double the affirmations. Yes, all affirmations all the time. Hashtag all day. All day. So How about you start us off? I'll start off. I've got, I've got two, and they're both kind of similar, but they're both pretty sweet. So I, I literally stumbled, not like actually stumbled, but I like wandered onto this website the other day that I discovered called windy.com. Have you ever heard of this website? No. Oh my gosh. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So it's a weather website, but it's like uh, real time scientific weather maps. So like you can filter on different views. So I, this is going to be really helpful for us at the beach because you can do one map that's uh, like a sea temperature map or a waves map and it'll show you like the waves as they come in Um, there's one that's really cool that's a real-time lightning filter and you can actually see and we had a thunderstorm yesterday so i was actually testing this you can see where the lightning registers and then they have like an expanding radius that represents the sound wave of the thunder and it was actually super accurate so i could see where the thunder would register and then i could watch the wave approaching my location and then the thunder would hit at the same time as it was on the screen. It was really sweet. So you have to check it out. Like I, I easily lost like an hour and a half just checking all of the different filters and watching all the cool stuff. Um, it's kind of hard to even really like explain how awesome this is. So you just have to check it out. It's windy.com. Um, it, it may replace your weather, uh, your weather website or application. It's pretty awesome. You can set up like alerts for different kinds of weather triggers. Um, one of the things that I've always thought was hard to find the information on but i always wanted to know was like how much snow do we actually have accumulated at any given point during the winter and they have a an accurate snow depth filter so you can see how much snowpack there is at any given point on the globe so it's really cool you have to check it out i actually 
totally didn't even hear most of what you said because I was checked out the website and I got totally yeah. distracted. I know, isn't <laughs> it's it? It's crazy. You got to shut it off while recording. Otherwise, it'll totally take you away. It's it's really cool. You're right. It's a little bit, it kind of defies verbal explanation because there's so much information I'm looking at right now. But the yeah. fact that you can, man, I'm looking at like actual wind patterns I know. for my location I right know. now. It's, it's cool. And you, um, they have like different, um, it's hard. They're like charts but they're they're different kinds of gram charts so there's one called a mediogram which is i would assume i haven't looked it up yet but i would assume it's like a standard format um almost like an infographic that meteorologists use to sort of get a snapshot of the whole like comprehensive weather outlook for a given area for a given amount of time it's really sweet it really is hard to describe what you're looking at with this, but like there's color bands and then there's particles that move across the screen that represent different things. It's pretty sweet. What I can say for certain is that one, it is unlike anything I've ever seen. And I feel like that's saying something for weather Mm -hmm. apps because now they just seem so commoditized. I know, you know, a weather app is a weather app is a weather app, but this is actually really super unique. And this is a great affirmation because I would say about 5% of the time, this is a podcast about the weather situation in our lives. It is. So this is per- perfect. Yeah, we should get a sponsorship <laughs> from them because then it could be like the we reformed, win- the windy.com reformed brotherhood weathercast. <laughs> we are such weather nerds, but I love I it. It's so sweet. You got to check it out. I love it. What That's about a you? great affirmation. What's your first affirmation of the day? So you and I fall into this group where we are among the visually impaired in that we need corrective lenses. And so I realized the other day that I love my glasses and I have several pairs of glasses from the same place. And that is Warby Parker. So what I love about Warby Parker and their entirely online retailer, actually I think they have some physical locations across the U S and major metropolitan areas is that one, it's a very affordable glasses and two, they're very high quality glasses. So I've ordered online glasses before from other places and they either do a couple of things like they fade or they just fall apart or they're not of particular high quality material. And it's not like I beat the heck out of my glasses, but you know, like I get business done with my glasses on. So <laughs> they, they need to, they need to stand up to some kind of wear and tear. So WarbyParker.com is a great place for glasses. And there's two things in particular that I love about them. One is that you can try on pairs of their glasses five at a time for free by just going to the website and ordering up a pair. So sometimes like I'm just bored. I just order up, I'll be honest with you. I just order up a pair of gla- a box of glasses <laughs> and, and I just get them and I try them out because here's the thing too. Like if you order glasses online, you can do everything that you're supposed to get a sense for like whatever online method they have for measuring. Like you can, import a photo, all that stuff is good to a certain point, but there's nothing like trying on a pair and making sure you do not look a complete fool. And that often happens to me for whatever reason. But the second thing I like is why I'm bringing this up right now is they've just added that as part of like their standard. So their standard eyeglasses come with like, you know, scratch resistant, UV protection, all that jazz, like all that good stuff, glare resistant, everything. But they've just added blue light filter, which I love. So That is worth it. It costs, I think, like 50 bucks extra. But to get a pair of really high-quality lenses with the blue light filter, that's on point. So I'm totally down with it. Um, Really affordable. So check it out. Warby Parker, W-A-R-B-Y Parker.com. Really, really great glasses. Did you know, I just discovered this the other day, they now make transition contact lenses. Crazy, right? 
Yeah. So like they transition, they're not like full on sun, like sunglass transitions, but they do transition to filter out uh, UV light a little bit when you're outside. So it doesn't replace your sunglasses, but it helps protect your eyes a little bit. And then they also transition for blue light as well. The one downside is that when they transition to either of those, they turn your uh, your eyes purple and you look a little bit like a demon. <laughs> Or as how I would imagine a demon looks. I've never seen a demon, but. Yeah, that'd be great. Can you imagine sitting in a meeting and those things transition as you walk in or whatever? Yeah. That would be, that would be fairly freaky. Yeah, I, I love this thing. I was thinking about glasses recently. I'm So I have contact lenses, but I'm like a proud glasses wearer. I kind of feel yeah. like, listen, this is the way I am. This is the way God and his providence has ordained my eyes to function. So I just own it. And the nice thing about Warby Parker is they've got lots of different styles and you can get something that really suits your personality. I was also thinking recently just how much I appreciate the age in which we live once again, because in many former ages, in fact, for most of history, when you when your eyes degenerated to any kind of small degree, imagine how debilitating that was. I mean, that that basically is yeah. not just life altering, but in some cases like life ending for careers, for every, everything else. Like just think about how horrible that is yeah. to be nearsighted in almost any other time in history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, although it's amazing how long ago the development of glasses actually was. I yeah, mean, true. people have been making spectacles to fix like eyeglasses, eye, like eyesight for like 700 years. It's been a really long time, a lot longer than I would have thought. Also, I don't know if you still can, but at one point in time, you could order from Warby Parker a monocle. Really? Prescription monocle that's pretty awesome yeah it's killer man so they have sunglasses regular glasses and at one point the monocle which i was really tempted to do but my wife was like stop it i feel like a monocle is probably something that you'll see offered on like missionaware.com soon <laughs> where it'll be like a style like one of those like really young restless reform style things that people do i could see that where they're like you know i was just reading bob Inc. the other day with my monocle <laughs> I could see that happening. Yeah, I could. that actually hits a little bit too close to home. It does hit a little close to home. Because so, if I'm being honest, I would buy one. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Uh, uh, I got to go find it. So yes. what, what's your second affirmation? So my second affirmation is another website. And so this one is a, a little bit of inside baseball for podcasters, probably not just podcasters, but especially podcasters. So we joke about how uh, I always say something along the lines of like, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. And then I never do. So like 99% of our, our episodes don't even have like a description because writing show notes is like the worst part of being a podcaster. For but sure. I found, I again, another thing that I just kind of tripped upon on the internet. I don't even know how I stumbled on it. It's a website called otter.ai. And what it is, is it's an artificial intelligence transcription service. But this is what's a little different is most transcription services, you have to pay, like you pay per minute for transcriptions. So unless you're like a professional podcaster and have all this income, which we have some really faithful listeners who've, who've donated and help us to cover our costs, but we don't have a lot of extra uh, cash flow running around. Um, we can't afford like a tent, like a 10 cent or a $10 a minute transcription fee. But this website, otter.ai gives you up to 600 minutes per month free of charge. And then the, the monthly, um, like the first level premium 
premium subscription is only like $5 if you're a student or $10 if you're not. And that's 6,000 minutes. So that's either 10 or 100 hours of transcription for a really affordable price. And here's what's the coolest thing about it is I've been playing around with a little bit. First, you can upload a file that you've already recorded, which is huge. Most of them you have to like read into the um, into the software in order for it to transcribe. So if you're doing it with a podcast, you have to set up this complex thing where you like feed the podcast back into the into the microphone of the computer, which it, it can be mess. Um, this you can upload a file. But what's cool is when you upload a file, it automatically attempts to distinguish between speakers. And it's not just doing that based on like big picture things, but it's actually analyzing the voice print of the speaker. So then you label a speaker. And once you label a speaker, it goes through all of the other recordings that you have stored and attempts to find that same speaker. So the more you identify speakers, this is where the artificial intelligence that use the machine learning, the more you identify a speaker in different files, the more accurate it gets. And then it starts to learn the unique vocabulary of that speaker. So I, I tested this with a couple of our episodes. Our voices have a similar kind of timber. It had a really tough time, but I, I uploaded three or four episodes and then I, t I went through and like painstakingly taught it the first the first episode. And then I asked it to reassess all the other ones I put in and it like a charm. It, it got all of it with like very few wow. mistakes. And it's it's really accurate. You can add custom vocabulary words. Um, it, it automatically pulls out keywords from the conversation, makes it all searchable. It's really sweet for for podcasters, especially because one of the things that they tell you if you listen to like the podcasting podcast or if you pay for like a, a book that teaches you how to podcast. This one's free here, folks, is you um, you should take a transcription of your podcast and then include the entire transcription somewhere on your website. Because then your audio becomes searchable text, which is difficult to do. And then that increases your rankings in the search engine. So you can literally take this and you can search it, but then you can toss it all on your website in the show notes of an episode. It becomes searchable, indexable, and taggable text. So it's really slick. Uh, I'm, I'm super impressed. I've tried a lot of transcription services, and this is easily the most accurate and the most user-friendly one that I've seen. Wow, that's crazy. That's actually pretty good. And and yeah. I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. So yeah. this is great. Bring well, yeah, and you could do on. it for like a meeting. Like you have an app on your phone. You toss the phone down in the middle of your meeting. You hit record. It'll record all the speakers and it'll pull apart who the speakers are and make that text searchable. So like you could do it for class. It might be a little hard for class because you're probably not close enough to the professor, but you could record the class on like a regular handheld recorder and then feed that audio via a file into it. It's it's really versatile. It's super useful. Um, and they have, a, they have a discounted price of $5 a month for students specifically because they want them to use it for lectures and stuff. And I'm sure they're like parsing out and using this uh, th i'm sure there's some big data component behind it where they're they're parsing out the voice prints and doing something with it in the background but I, I don't care about that i mean we already live in a surveillance state so everybody knows everything they want to know and they can find it out it's not there's nothing i can really do to change it so i'm not super worried about that but if you are probably be aware that they're probably parsing your voice print and selling that data somehow let me make a confession about that type of thing so this particular year for that holiday during the winter months where we often exchange gifts, <laughs> my my wife got me a gift, which you know about, and it was 
and Amazon Echo. Oh man. And you know how we talked about this before, like everybody's listening to everything and you just got to be totally down with that or just pretend like it doesn't actually happen to, so that you can feel safe. (laughs) But regardless of how you approach that situation, there's been a lot in the news recently about how, you know, often if you say something to your Amazon enabled device and it doesn't recognize exactly what you're going to say, that gets reviewed of course by somebody because they're trying to break down to enable machine learning to understand what you're saying. So no joke, like a lot of time, again, if I just come like into the room where the device is, I'll just say something really, really random. I'll say Alexa and then I'll just, yeah, she's going to freak out in a second. I'll just say something really random about the gospel in hopes that it gets in front of somebody. I do this all the time. That's great. Yeah. It's awesome. You know, it's funny. I was in a, I was in a meeting with the section chief in our department and we were having a discussion and the topic of the conversation was, like a process that had sort of developed. So when you're doing management of any kind of like a staff, there's processes that you build and then there's processes that kind of develop on their own. And usually the processes that develop on their own are not, they're not very good. They just kind of happen. So we were talking about this process that we weren't sure where it came from. And it was like one of those things where you're like putting your hand, like your head in your hands, trying to figure out how did this happen? And out of nowhere, his phone must've heard some keyword that thought it sounded like, Hey Siri. And it, it just goes, I'm sorry, I don't understand. And we all lost it because we're like, we don't understand either, Siri. (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious, though, because that's actually not necessarily happened to me, but I've been in a similar situation where it's like just amazing, like stark quiet and somebody's phone is just like, I do not understand what you're asking. Yeah. So, Jesse, what's your second affirmation for the night? Okay, here's the last one for me. And it's, it's really quick, but in line of just embracing the way that God has made us, There are certain people in this world for which there is no greater representation than the fallen world and sin than gluten. So I have to avoid gluten and that makes me really, really sad in many ways, especially when it comes to delicious beer, since beer is mainly like gluten and water and hops (laughs) and yeast and alcohol. Yeah. Uh, And so I've been on this quest to really find beer that doesn't taste like straight rump but that is gluten-free and that's, that's kind of difficult. And a lot of times what happens is the beer is made in such a way where it's, it's not really gluten-free, but they make it with gluten and then they process it out. But then, you know, that gets funky. So anyway, what I want to recommend is a beer that sounds super cool is super close to, I think some kind of reformed terminology anyway, and it's super delicious. And that is a beer called Glutenberg. Nice. And it's actually made by a Canadian company, but they have, a blonde ale, they have an American pale ale, they have red, they have a gose, they have IPA, a stout, and a white. These are all gluten-free, but here's what's great about them. They're made with alternative grains, like quinoa and ancient grains. I know this sounds crazy. Like This sounds like the kind of thing that would really like taste like ground-up pulverized shoe leather, but it's really good, especially the white and the IPA. I, have, you've tried some of these, right? Did yeah, you brought together? some during midwinter, no reason for getting together season. Yeah, that and, was a great season. Um, I won't say that it tastes exactly like what you would expect from a normal gluten beer, but they weren't bad. They they definitely were. You could definitely taste that they were different in some sense. But I feel like if you if you if it was a blind taste test and you put like a regular IPA made with wheat and hops and then a regular or a glutenberg beer 
made with some alternative grain and hops. I don't feel like I would have been able to say, oh, yeah, this was made with something other than wheat. Um, I would have been able to tell, like, something's a little different here, but I probably wouldn't be able to tell what it was. So for those who are, um, for whatever reason, wanting to avoid gluten, um, it's definitely a good alternative. It's a great alternative. It's the best that I've found. I know some people are going to, like, throw the flag and say, like, omission is awesome. And omission is a pretty good beer. But, again, that's one that's made with, like, it has a restriction on the parts per million. This is totally gluten-free. Right. And it's kind of hipster, like – you want to be that dude that shows up and be like, I brought beer made from quinoa. Like that's just yeah. super hipster. Yeah. So I, I recommend it. I think that if there's any adjective to properly describe you, it's probably super hipster. <laughs> Is that really? The right I feel adjective? like it might be. <laughs> uh, sometimes I, th- I look at, I'm like, Jesse's really kind of a hipster. <laughs> the fact that you for fun, sometimes order some Warby Parker trial glasses that's a pretty hipster thing to do. Fair enough. You're like, and I they need have to see, I need to make sure that I have the newest hipster trends so that I can be just like all the rest of the hipsters. Fair enough. I just like their glass. I just like glasses. Like you wear glasses. Do you like glasses? I do, but I'm switching to contacts mostly because I, when I go to the beach, I want to be able to wear sunglasses. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I get that. That's a real struggle for us glasses people. Yeah. I'm actually thinking about LASIK surgery and I was like really scared until I, I was like, man, if they screw it up, I'm going to go blind. And I found out that actually in the history of LASIK surgery, there's never been a single instance of anyone ever having any serious eye impairment as a result of LASIK surgery. Man. So like the incident rate is zero. Like there's been complications, but there's right, never sure. been anybody who's had negative impact to their sight as a result of laser laser surgery. I had a good friend who just had the LASIK done and he loved it. And one yeah. of the things I found like just blew me away was that he, he must have granted permission for this. And I don't understand all the details because like you said, I'm a Luddite when it comes to social media, but somehow they like, I think they did it on Facebook live with his permission or they at least sent him the video somehow so yeah. you could see it being done if he wanted to. I was like, man, that's that's just too much for me. Yeah, I'd be like, don't don't show me. I don't yeah, want to I don't see need it. to see that. I don't, I don't need, need to, to see, see that you jam. cut my eye open and and laser the inside of it, like resculpt yeah. the the shape of my eye with a laser. Yeah, but you know what? That reminds me. Speaking of resculpting and shaping vision, especially vision about the future. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yes. you get seven bonus points. Seventy. Uh, you get three point five bonus points. Yes, for that so... transition. So good. I'll give you We're the kick- other three point five bonus points at the end of our episode. That's fair. It's that's only fair to do it halfway. So uh, we are starting this brand new series on eschatology, which I think we've kind of toyed around with this idea of like the summer of the eschaton, the summer yeah. of the end times, and this going is through the a last whole bunch ever. of yeah. <laughs> it's like the summer of George, but yeah, the summer of everything ending. And uh, this is a, a kind of the first of an extended conversation about eschatology and things about the end times, the eschaton, trying to really get to the heart of kind of different theories, different understandings, worldviews, perspectives, paradigms of how to understand what the Bible says about how things will end. And so we've decided, or I think you decided in your infinite wisdom, because I want to follow your lead on this, that today we want to talk about historic premillennialism and dispensationalism all together, all at once. And so before people start like gnashing their teeth and throwing their listening devices from their cars in their homes, let's talk about first, like real quick, why we lump those two together. Well, cause they're the exact same thing, right? <laughs> that's, that's why, isn't it? 
No, uh, they're not the exact Moving same on. thing. Uh, if anything, historic premillennialism was corrupted into dispensationalism in the 1800s. So we'll, we'll get into the details of what the view is and kind of the features of it and how they're different. But more or less, historic premillennialism was a view that was prominent in the early church. It might actually even be the most prominent view in the early church. Um, right. It's kind of hard to talk about what's prominent and what's the most prominent view in the early church because we actually don't have a lot of documentation from the first like two centuries, um, really until you get to like 180 or, or 200. We don't have a wide proliferation of documents. So the of the documents that we have, historic premillennialism, or I suppose just premillennialism, was a very common view among the early church fathers. Um, as we get into... Um, sort of the, the era of the Constantinian church or the um, the post-Nicene church where the church and the state are no longer at odds, we start to see other views emerge, which I'm sure some people will point at and say, see, once they got in bed with Rome, they were able, but whatever. Um, really what it was is they had more time to think about these sort of other doctrines that don't have a lot of on the ground application. Um, and so they were able to like reason through a lot of other things that they hadn't gotten to yet. But so historic premillennialism emerges and it's called historic because it has such a historic lineage emerges right. very early on. And then in the 1800s, there was a group of people who held to a historic premillennial view, but they began to sort of distort that based on this weird vision that some little girl had about everyone disappearing from their beds. So this is this is what becomes dispensationalism later on in the, the, the 19th century. Yeah. So at the risk of making this really, really basic, when we're talking about premillennialism writ large, we're talking about a system that's Primarily based on a literal method of biblical interpretation, and the main premise of prima man. It's hard to say. It is hard to say when you're getting after it. Just say, just say Kyleism. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about Kyleism. Yes, they just keep coming. So the, the main thrust is that Jesus will literally return to the earth before, which is where the pre comes from, before the millennium that a thousand year reign begins, and that he himself will inaugurate and rule over it. So. When I look at premillennialists, I'm seeing them divided into two groups with respect to their central approach to the prophetic scriptures. So you have the historic premillennialists and then this dispensational premillennialist view. Right. And the principal difference, at least as I read them, between the two is the emphasis that each gives to the nation of Israel during the millennium, which is that period of a thousand years during which Christ will reign on earth. So really, I think it's very fair to group them together in the sense that they're both referring to Christ returning before this millennium ring. So that's the easy way to remember why these differ than the other ones. Yeah. And just like we, when we talked about our atonement series, we kind of had as a, as sort of a centralizing verse or a, uh, architectonic verse was the verse in Romans that says that God is both the just and the justifier in, in discussions of the eschatology. And in, in this series, we're really focusing primarily on the different views in relation to the events in revelation. And right. so particularly in view with premillennialism. And then when we get to awe and postmillennialism is revelation chapter 20. So just before we kick off the series here, I want to read that. So starting with verse one, it says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand, the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. 
after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's where the millennium comes in. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plains of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So this this chapter or this portion of this chapter sets up what is, is called pretty much across the board is called the millennial reign of Christ. And so what's different is different, uh, different views of the millennium either uh, identify the, the bodily return of Christ as happening prior to the millennium, which is the view we're talking about tonight, premillennialism, or after the millennial, uh, millennia, millennium, uh, which is postmillennialism, or then there's amillennialism, which more or less views the millennium not to be a concrete period of time, but to be sort of a symbolic or a representative uh, figure of time in the scripture. There are some views that hold some other weird things. We're going to talk about preterism next week, so that's going to be a little bit different too, or next time. Um, but to, this week we're we're looking at the view. Both of the views we're going to look at tonight identify the period of Christ's return as happening prior to this uh, thousand year reign. And then the, the, um, the battle or the Armageddon battle happens after this thousand years. So Christ returns. There's a thousand years of basically peace as Christ kind of reestablishes his kingdom on earth. And then there's sort of this final battle that happens when the devil is released for some reason. Um, and then, then comes this throne judgment that we see in, in revelation 20 verse 11. Right on. So let's break a little bit into each of those and kind of talk about some of their distinguishing pieces as we at least we understand them. So let's start with like historic pre-mill, since that one sounds historic and we should go there first. So the way I understand this is really most historic premillennialists believe that scriptural prophecy, kind of like what you were saying, especially passages in Daniel and the one you just read, read from Revelation, give the entire history of the church in a more symbolic form. So they're right. looking into the church's past and present to find the prophetic fulfillment and to see where we are in God's prophetic timetable. And I would say most historic premills hold that the nation of Israel is going to undergo actually some kind of national salvation immediately before that millennium is established, but there will be no national restoration of Israel. So the right. nation of Israel will have, will not have like a special role or function that's distinct from the church. The church is Israel in the, in the largest sense. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, we have to understand that even though there are views that have similar features, um, 
there are a lot of views that believe that Christ comes back before the millennium. There are a lot of views that have that, but historic premillennialism is only one of those views. So you've heard me joke right. a little bit about this view called Kyleism, which was actually declared to be a heresy in the early church. And this view basically is associated with a docetic Christology, or sorry, with a, a an overly humanistic uh, Christology where Christ returns and he reigns for a thousand years. But then his reign ends, and then it becomes the reign of the Father. And so the the clause in the Nicene Creed that says his kingdom will have no end was specifically rejecting this idea of Kyleism, where Christ's reign was over this thousand-year period, but then Christ no longer reigns as a king. So although we're joking, I'm joking a little bit about calling this Kyleism, really it's not the same as Kyleism because the historic premillennial view uh, would generally say, yes, there's this earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years, and then that reign changes, but Christ still reigns after that, where the Kyleism view would say Christ no longer reigns after the thousand years. Right. Yeah, there's a hopeful distinction because there are, this is one of those things where, especially when we start talking about, we throw around words like the rapture, there's, there's kind of this weird confluence of lots of different worldviews that join at that particular point. Right. Or at least that is in common culture, the thing that a lot of Christians are familiar with, either by way of just storytelling or just kind of common common cultural like influences. And there is something to be said that, you know, when Jesus began his public ministry, the kingdom of God was certainly manifest through that ministry. And so you have this kind of basis, at least in the historic premillennial view, that upon his ascension into heaven and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, the kingdom is still present through the Spirit until the end of the age, which is marked by the return of Christ to the earth in judgment. And then during the period immediately preceding the return of Christ, there's this great apostasy and tribulation. And so then you have after the return of Christ, there will be this period of a thousand years. That's the millennium. And that's separating the first resurrection from the second resurrection. So Satan will be bound, and just like you read, the kingdom will be consummated in the sense that it's going to be made visible during that period. It'll be manifest in a physical state. And then at the end of that period, that a thousand years, Satan will be loosed, and there's going to be this massive rebellion immediately preceding the second resurrection or the final judgment. Right. And after this, that's when there will be the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Right. And so just just to kind of close out any real discussion of, of Kyleism, at least until we get back to the dispensational view, because I, I think it'll come back around. It says here, uh, I'm reading out of Bavink, volume four, and it's on page 655. It says that Kyleism, uh, in its attempt, quote, its attempts to do justice to Old Testament prophecy in the sense that accepts the earthly messianic kingdom predicted by it but claims that this kingdom will be replaced after a time by the kingdom of God. So, so Bavink is making the point that Kyleism um, affirms that Christ will reign. The messianic kingdom will exist for a thousand years, but the messianic kingdom is distinct from the king, the quote kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God will replace the messianic kingdom. So that's where Kyleism differs from historic premillennialism is that, um, Historic premillennialism does view the um, the kingdom of God 
as a comprehensive rule of Christ and the Father and the Spirit. But it right. would say that the millennial kingdom is kind of a distinct phase of that kingdom of God, that exactly. consummate kingdom of God. It's kind of the initiation or the, the coronation, the, the commencement of the kingdom of God, which is then sort of transmuted into this permanent rule of Christ. So that's where it differs. So I think we can put Kyleism to rest for a little while, but I do think we'll come back to it when we get to dispensationalism in, in a few minutes here. It's kind of like the amuse-bouche of the kingdom yeah, of God. Yeah, it's like the appetizer. <laughs> yeah, it's like a taste. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm all distracted. I've got Bob Inc. in my hand, so I got... Just like you got distracted with Windy.com, I'm all distracted by Bob Inc. here. So then let's trans- transition a little bit to dispensationalism and right. give an overview of that. And I find, for just for the record, dispensationalism is fascinating. In, in the sense that it's a really interesting... And dare I say, often complicated understanding. Yes. They have the best charts. Yeah, they do have the best charts. That's a good way of saying it. Like if you want to see some amazing chartage, just look up dispensationalism. Like just Google yeah. image that. Yeah. And All millennial charts are really boring. Yeah. It's, nothing, it's like, yeah, it's just like Jesus them. is king. That, that's the whole chart. <laughs> It's just like a phrase on the board. Right. That's all it is. Yeah. So yeah, let so, me let me give you Mike Horton's definition of, of uh dispensationalism. And yes, he's, let's start he's, there. he's exceedingly charitable in that he calls it dispensational premillennialism. I actually think that's probably a little more generous than most pro premillennials would appreciate because dispensationalism um, although it shares, again, there are lots of views that share certain features, although it shares the feature that Christ returns at the beginning of the millennium or, or inaugurates the millennium by his return, there, that's really the end of the major similarities. Um, yes. So here's how he defines it. He says that it is the, quote, expectation of a literal thousand-year kingdom in the future that will also culminate in human failure. Israel and the church represents two distinct peoples with different programs in salvation history. Uh, and that's on page 435 of Pilgrim Theology. So he's he's calling out a couple features where he's talking about it's a literal thousand years. So that's important. Although there are lots of um, progressive dispensationalists, or you might call them like modernist dispensationalists who would say that, who would sort of let that become a more figurative number that it really just represents like a long time. But the key is that there's this real concrete defined period of time on earth where Christ is bodily reigning, usually from Jerusalem. Usually he's sitting on a, a real physical throne in Jerusalem. The temple's been rebuilt and that this, this dispensation, and this is key to the dispensational system. Um, we did an episode on dispensationalism a while back. Um, so go look that up uh, because we went into a lot of detail there. But the key with dispensationalism is that every dispensation has a particular set of rules and a test and that that generally speaking, um, the test is always failed. So in the, the dispensational view, this millennial dispensation, the, the hallmark of it is that humans fail to pass the probation of the, dispens, uh, the millennial dispensation. And right. then it retains this distinction between Israel and the church that it's two distinct persons or two distinct people groups with two distinct programs in salvation history. Now, that doesn't mean that all dispensationalists would say Israel gets, gets to heaven by means of works. Some of them do. 
most would still say Israel gets to heaven by God's grace through faith in the Messiah, but it's still not the same exact thing as what we talk about when Christians get to heaven when with through faith in the Messiah. It's still a different kind of a situation. Yeah, and there's two things I want to draw, I think, from Horton's definition that are pertinent or germane to this particular conversation. The first is what we've kind of mentioned, but I think bears repeating that the dispensationalist is going to insist, no matter how many dispensations they speak of, and there are varieties of that, that God has those two redemptive plans. And it's one is for the national Israel and the right. one is for Gentiles during the quote unquote church age. The second key piece, I think, is that there is a rapture of believers when Jesus Christ secretly returns to earth before the seven-year tribulation period begins. And that's referencing that 70th week from Daniel 9. Right. So believers are not going to experience the persecution of the Antichrist who's going to rise to prominence during that tribulation period. And they would say that all of this biblical data dealing with the time of tribulation is referring to unbelieving Israel, not the church as you and I would right. speak of the church. So this church age or this age of grace is really to be seen as that period of time in which God is dealing with the Gentiles, like people like you and I, prior to the coming of the kingdom of God during that millennium. So right. there's going to be this visible and physical second coming of Christ, and that's going to occur after this tribulation. And those who are converted to Christ during the tribulation, which includes like the 144,000 Jews, or at least their interpretation of it, who turn to Christ, go on into the millennium to repopulate the earth. So glorified believers rule with Christ during his future reign. And what I think is really super interesting about their understanding of how that ruling takes place is, you know, Jesus is, came to earth bringing with him an offer of the kingdom to the Jews who rejected him. That was that particular epoch, that particular dispensation. So then God turned to dealing with the Gentiles, and thus that's what brings the church age. But the church age is just like this, I often see it referenced as like this parentheses. Right. You know, like the, the real, I don't want to say the real, the, the, there is a parallel track for Israel. And it's kind of just being put on hold until Christ comes again before the millennium and then kicks off this whole process. Really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a lot about classical theism and divine simplicity and divine foreknowledge on this show. Um, particularly pertinent to this is the episode I did with Trevor Marsteller, who um, is one of the pub admins, about the differences between Arminianism and Reformed theology in reference to God's foreknowledge and whether he sees the future or whether the future happens because of God's decree. And what one of the main critiques I have of dispensationalism is they have this picture uh, of God. And I don't I don't know any dispensationalist that would consciously say this. So I want to be clear about that. But this is, I think, an entailment of their view is that God's original plan right, if you will, God's plan A was for Israel to receive and accept the Messiah. Right. Uh, when Christ came in the first century, and then for the Gentiles to be grafted into Israel through that new nation. So in, in essence, what we see in Revelation, you know, we see this this sort of strange picture towards the end of Revelation. I don't have the, the chapter in front of me, but there's there's the New Jerusalem and all the believers live in new Jer the New Jerusalem. But then there are still these other nations outside of the New Jerusalem. And so I've, I've always struggled, to be honest, a little bit what to do with that. Like, what is that talking about? And the dispensational view would say that there's this body of believers that live in the New Jerusalem, and then there's still this evangelistic effort for those who are outside of the city who still need to be brought into the New Jerusalem. And so the dispensationalist view basically says that's how the way that Israel was supposed to function. 
right? They were supposed to accept the Messiah and then the Messiah would establish this, this sort of reign on earth, this Davidic kingdom on earth. And then the Gentiles would be brought into that. And they look at Solomon as kind of a foreshadowing that there are Gentiles that come and they're jealous of Israel. And so they want us, they want what Israel has, but then Israel rejects the Messiah. So God kind of skips over that and goes straight to the Gentiles and the Gentiles sort of now are used in the sort of reverse way where Israel is now made jealous of the Gentiles and what they have. And through that jealousy, Israel is brought back into the fold. So then in the, in the end times, the church is removed from the equation in the rapture. And now Israel, because of their jealousy of the Gentiles is ready to receive the Messiah in the millennial rule. So there's this seven year period of, of tribulation and there's all sorts of Jewish people who come to faith in Jesus. And this represents more of a progressive view of the, of dispensationalists than the classical view, but they come to faith in Messiah. And then through that faith in Messiah, that's where the thousand year reign comes in. So believers right. are brought back. The thousand year reign initiates. And then there's some strange stuff that happens after the millennium that I don't know that we need to get into right now. But I've always thought this was interesting because it really does seem like it relies on God having to not just sort of hypothetically change his plan, which is kind of the where, where we land in reform theology, right? We talk about God's initial plan with the the, um, the covenant of works that Adam failed. And so then right. he initiates the covenant of grace. That's all something that we, we believe God decreed before all time. But dispensationalism really does treat it like God set the Messiah and expected the Messiah to be successful. And then all of a sudden he's not. And so God has to have this parenthetical period with the Gentiles. So I'm not, I've never been quite sure how that lines up with God's foreknowledge in the sense that God genuinely knows the future, but also God genuinely decrees the future. I don't know how people like MacArthur who would affirm in a robust sense, the decrees of God could still hold this view yet. He does. Well, at least it doesn't line up easily, right? Right. It's, you, you have to do a little bit of gymnastics, both linguistically and theologically, I think, to a- arrive at that. But you're right also that if you have a, a believing brother or sister who holds to this view, they're never going to come out and say, well, this is God's plan B, because right. they certainly would not subscribe to that kind of language. And that's what makes this really interesting, because the the other piece in terms of like the outworking like you just said of how we understand then the millennium and what's strange about this is if you subscribe to the dispensationalist view then you're going to have to say that the millennium period of history is a time which God is reverting back to fulfilling his old testament promises made right. to ethnic Israel right after the modern church age everything you just said right we that we live today after that has concluded and so that means that as such the millennium will be a state of Jewish dominion all over the world along with a newly restored Jewish temple and priesthood, which right. we could go on. We could talk just about that. For and the whole sacrificial podcast. system. That's really yes, important. The, the whole thing, like the whole mamma system has to be right. reinstored in place. So what's strange about this to me is one of the outworkings of that whole understanding then is that Christians who reign with Christ, because we're understanding that that's what the scriptures tell us. Christians will reign with Christ. So those that reign with Christ are going to have, are being given this eternal glorified bodies, but they're going to reign spiritually, right. at least during that period of time, while the Jews will basically own the world physically and will like live, they'll marry, they'll die. And 
just as people have throughout all of history during that time. That's really strange to me. Yeah. I don't know that that comports well with like what the scriptures are saying that per se, but the, this view leads toward that natural outworking. So it's only after that thousand year period in which God fulfills his promises to ethnic Israel that Christ is going to again put down that final rebellion and usher in an eternal state with its new heaven and new earth. But during that time, again, we're, they are, they're like parallel tracks, but in a really strange way, in right. a way that I think you, you kind of, I don't want to say, you're not twisting the scripture, but we're really trying to import this into the scripture rather than kind of exegete it out, at least in my opinion. Right. So why don't we do this just um, to sort of lay the foundation for the rest of the series? We're going to, I'm going to go through, and as best as I can, right, I'm I'm an amillennialist. Uh, when I'm having a bad day and maybe a post-millennialist when I'm having a good day. So those views are closely related. So I guess you might call me an optimistic amillennialist. I don't think that the world is culminating in some golden age, but I also don't think that the world is in this sort of like, like steep dive decline. I think that probably it's as bad as it's ever been. Anyway, Fair we'll enough. talk more about that in a couple of weeks when we get to my view. But I'm going to try to go through Revelation 20 and try to give you as best I can the way they understand this from each of the views. So we have these common features, right? That at the beginning of the thousand years, Satan is bound, he's cast into this pit and he's shut up for the duration of this thousand years. And then there's this period on earth where there's there's the reign of Christ on earth for this thousand year period. And then Satan is released and there's this final consummate battle. So as best as I understand it, the historic premillennialist would argue that Christ returns at the beginning of this thousand year period. He sets up this reign on earth and that his reign continues in maybe a newer transmuted fashion after the after this final battle. So there's there's this period where Satan is bound, Christ returns, he reigns on earth, and then his reign continues after the thousand years. That's pretty straightforward. I don't have any major objections to that other than than the standard objections. But the dispensationalist view, basically what they say here, and this is where I think dispensationalism really goes off the rails, is they say that, all right, there's this seven-year period prior to the um, prior to the millennial reign, where at, at the seven years beforehand, all of the Christians in the world are brought up into heaven. But right. there's still people after the after this rapture who express faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the people they would say are the people who um, come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So it's not necessarily that there's this actual resurrection that happens, but that there's this uh, there's this coming to spiritual life. And these people who were alive during the rapture, but not yet Christians, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, they they come to spiritual life, and that's kind of the first the first um, the first resurrection. Then they reign with Christ, and then there's this thousand year period where there are still people living life, they're, they're getting married, they're giving birth, they're raising children. Right. People come to faith in Christ more or less in the same way. And then after the thousand years, there's another general resurrection. And I'm, I've never been clear about who the subject of that resurrection is, who it is right, that's exactly. being raised from the dead, but there's this second resurrection. And I would actually say some dispensationalists probably say that there's actually a resurrection of the unjust at this moment, because then there's this army that Satan has that comes against the forces of Christ and is destroyed. And then we go on and those forces of evil are cast into the sea of fire. So the unjust must be raised as well. 
in this second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. And then they're cast into the lake of fire. So I can see where this comes from the text, right? It's not entirely irrational. This is where I think dispensationalism really falls apart is that rather than interpreting the Bible literally as they claim, they interpret the Bible literalistically and they do that selectively, right? right. So um, it's literal until you want to say that the locusts are actually helicopters, right? right? So, so the locusts can be representative of helicopters. They can be a, the locusts could be Apache helicopters if you want them to be. And that's somehow still literal. But if the new Jerusalem floating down from heaven, isn't actually a city coming out of the sky that's built like a cube, then somehow you're allegorizing the text. So I would actually say, at least in terms of, I don't want to call it polemics because generally polemics happen outside of the church, but in terms of inner Christian debate and dialogue, I actually think that those of us who don't hold the, the, uh, the dispensational view should stop using the word literal when we're talking about how dispensationalists interpret the text. They don't interpret it literally because literally means according to the literal conventions or the literary conventions of the text. So interpreting a poem literally means that you interpret it according to the conventions of poetry, of that kind of poetry, where, where they, the dispensationalists sort of ignore the fact that this text is not a strict historical prophecy in that it's prophesying a literalistic vision of the future, but instead it's prophesying a highly symbolic statement about the future of all things, or maybe about the past of most things, if you're, if you're a preterist or a partial preterist. But either way, they interpret this literalistically, and they do so selectively. Right. And so much of contemporary evangelicalism is drawing from that particular fountain, whether they right. realize it or not, in the sense yeah. of just general dispensational eschatology. And so kind of as we wind down this conversation, one of the things I want to recommend is, is self-serving. One of the episodes we did where we spoke with Rob McKenzie, who authored a fantastic book, perhaps one of the best books, honestly, I've ever read on dispensationalism called Identifying the Seed. Yeah, maybe and one of the only he does, really good ones. What's that? I said it might be one of the only really good ones because what <laughs> his actual program, his actual project there was pretty unique in that he wanted yes. to be exceedingly fair and charitable. Not that other authors haven't been fair, but his his um, his onus for writing the book was really to be winsome to people who are still in his family who are dispensationalists. Yeah. And I've, I've said this before with, with respect to that work. It's really good because Rob grew up in that particular tradi tradition and then grew into Reformed theology. And so he is the unique type of person that actually knows the language on both sides and right. can translate really, really well. Yeah. So if you know people, and actually I'll just leave it that way. If you know people, probably some of them are dispensationalists, even if they don't realize it, this is just yeah. a great book. So look up Identifying the Seed. If, if this has kind of sparked some interest, this conversation we've been having about dispensationalism, because there's so much more than we can even say. And Theology is Simply Profound, that podcast did a whole amazing series on it. Yeah. And they did, I don't know, like a dozen episodes. And that was probably even in many ways just scratching the surface of many of these ideas that we've talked about. So go check out Identifying the Seed by Rob McKenzie. Yeah. He's a dear brother, and it's a really a fantastic work. Yeah, and another couple good resources, because, you know, we went a lot deeper in the Atonement uh, series than I think we're going to be able to in this Eschatology series, but there are a lot of great resources that go a lot deeper than we're going to be able to. So Two Thieves Podcast, which is a currently dormant member of the Society of Reform Podcasters, 
Although I've heard rumors that they may be waking up soon. Um, oh, don't call to come back. They did a series on eschatology that actually is very unique in the podcasting world. It was like a fully produced documentary podcast on the different views of eschatology. So go check that out. It was super good. I know that it took them a ton of time. Otherwise, they probably would have done more of that kind of thing. But it's so time consuming. But there's also a really good book by Sam Storms. I wouldn't recommend Sam Storms on everything. But on this subject, he's excellent. And it's called Kingdom Come. Um, and he is a dispensation, a former dispensationalist who graduated with his MDiv from Dallas Theological Seminary, which is kind of the hotbed or the seedbed of dispensational theology in America. And he graduated from there with his MDiv, and then he came into an understanding of amillennialism. So the book is a positive argument for amillennialism, but it has a really good section, which gives a good description of dispensationalism, and then just dismantles it. So I, I, wanted, I wanted to just jump back real quick, because we kept on talking about Kyleism. And the other element that I think is really dangerous about dispensationalism is, and, is it actually goes back to this idea of Kyleism. Right. So in the dispensational schema, there is a a permanent distinction between the Davidic kingdom on earth, which is the messianic kingdom in which Christ rules for that literal thousand years on earth. There's a distinction between that and then the spiritual kingdom of Christ throughout all eternity. So even though the saints, the, the, the Gentile saints come back to earth in some schemas. The emphasis for the Gentiles is still in the spiritual reign with Christ in heaven. So the Gentiles stay in heaven reigning bodily somehow with Christ and the Jews reign on earth during this millennial kingdom and then continue to reign on earth in this eternal physical kingdom. But there's still this bifurcation of the kingdom of God where Christ reigns in heaven and the Jews reign on earth in some sense. And so there still is that really distinct element of a distinction between the messianic kingdom and the kingdom of God that isn't properly speaking, isn't Kyleism, right? Anyone who tells you that dispensationalism is, you know, dispensationalism equals Kyleism is either ignorant or is not being very careful with their terms. But there are some dangerous affinities that I think, because I think that in, in terms of academic dispensationalism, they maintain that distinction. But in terms of popular dispensationalism, how it actually makes its way into the average dispensationalist piety and in their understanding of the the future of the earth and the future of God's people, it does retain this sort of strictly distinctive Kyleistic feature that I think can really be dangerous in terms of how we understand the future of, of all things. Right on. That's well said. I mean, that's as good as any place I think to wrap this up. And I appreciate what you said before, because I think part of what we're trying to bring in this conversation is to bring an introduction to some of this stuff. And hopefully if just people who are listening will feel a little bit more confident and comfortable with the terms that are being used and how to parse them out in their minds so that when they're talking to people and they're hearing how they express their understanding of the eschaton, that they might be able to catalog, not necessarily the person, but at least some of the ideas and allow for a little bit more fruitful, intellectual and theological conversation. So to that end, let's do something we haven't done in a little while, which is let's wrap up really quick with a little spiritual conferencing. Are you up for some of that? Let's do it. Why don't you go first? All right. So in this time, we, we always like to kind of just share a little bit about, as we've been reading the scriptures, what God has been bringing to our hearts and to our minds. And so for me, I've been spending a little bit of time this week in Proverbs 3 and 4. And this has just become strangely apropos for me because I'm reading about all of this wonderful, all this wonderful 
how do I say this? Like wisdom about how we use our time, or at least what I'm understanding about Solomon's saying about this. And it just reminded me that, especially in Proverbs 5 here, that so much of sin has this practical effect on our bodies and in our minds and our hearts. And one of those effects is that it's always kills your strength. It always destroys um, your literal ability to do things, to process things, to be before God and to be productive always, every time. It, it always leads to exhaustion. And oftentimes it leads to somebody being able to basically take or sap your own strength and use it for their advantage. And that, that goes to every sin. But what became apropos for me was this idea that if wisdom is what is productive, what is godly, what is rewarding, what is spiritually satisfying, that in the opposite sense, then every time we pursue folly, it's exactly the opposite. One is life giving, other one is life destroying. Yeah. And so where I started to really think about that, and maybe this is going too far, it was just something you and I have processed before together. And that's this idea that I think part of folly is when we approach things and the use of time foolishly. So obviously it's good to relax and it's good to pursue things that allow you to decompress. When that decompression though comes without boundaries, I think it spills over into folly. And then ironically, when you're trying to use that for rest, because it becomes folly, because it's, it's unmitigated, it's unmanaged, it actually ends up sapping your strength. And for yeah. me, where this is coming to play is for things as ridiculous as it sounds like Twitter. If I go into Twitter without any good boundaries, even in relaxation, I actually find that when I relieve myself from it, when I jump in and I've watched a thousand YouTube videos just because I've just clicked through, yeah. that actually I'm not rested at the end of that. I actually feel like all my strength is gone, that I feel less, not only less productive, but less useful, yeah. less, less rewarded, and it leaves me feeling more empty rather than more reinvigorated. So I think that embedded in Proverbs 5 is, is all this wonderful stuff about being faithful that I think the best thing I've done practically is I know I want to do those things to relax. So I say, here's 10 minutes. It's 10 minutes to relax. I'm going to go do this and then I'm going to move on to something yeah. else. Like that's enough time to decompress and to move on. So I just love and continually am impressed with how God through his Holy Spirit made the scriptures an eternal contemporary, no matter where we are yeah. in the world, no matter what age in which we live, here we find the good news. And part of that good news is not just the gospel, which is just radical in its own right, but the sense that we have this wonderful wisdom literature, which is, this is like truth for living. Yeah. This is truth for like Monday and Tuesday mornings. This is like how to actually go forward and navigate your life in a way that in which you are filled with the spirit. And part of that is like, Hey, Get off for me. Get off YouTube and Twitter. Uh, use it to relax. Set a boundary on the time. Move on. Yeah, yeah. My um, my take on this week is actually um, providentially related. I, I suppose we should stop being surprised when those things happen, where our our spiritual conferencings line up so much. Um, I have found that in the same way, I find a lot of ways to waste time. And then I'm really frustrated with myself that I haven't accomplished all the things I want to. Yeah, me too. And so for me, it took the form of a video game, right? So I don't, I don't play a lot of video games, or at least historically, for the last couple of years, I haven't. I was a huge gamer in college. Um, I was a pretty big gamer before I got married. And then just for a number of reasons, I just wasn't, mostly I didn't have time to do it anymore. But I, I had recently uh, purchased a game and... 
you know, there's nothing wrong with purchasing a video game. There's nothing wrong with right. enjoying a video game and spending some time playing it. But I often found was when I was faced with the choice to either do something that I knew needed to get done. And I'm specifically talking about like my schoolwork or editing that podcast or studying the scriptures, things that um, are other than editing the scripture, like things that are equally optional, right? It's not like I'm talking about like, oh, I'm staying home from work to play this video game. Um, I found that the things that I was foregoing doing in favor of playing this game were the kinds of things that not only were restful, but also edified me spiritually. And then this game that I was playing, maybe in a certain sense, it was restful, but I found that it was kind of consuming me and that I would, I was thinking about, I would find myself at work thinking about the next time I could get home to play this game or the next kind of move I was going to make or the next quest I was going to pursue in this game. And you know what? Like I said, there's nothing wrong with playing video games. I'm not one of those people that's like, grow up and get out of your mom's basement. I'm not one of those people. (laughs) Like, video games are no different than sitting and watching a television show. It's a form of entertainment. Just like any other form of entertainment, we have the liberty to engage in that in appropriate ways. But I found that You know, when I I did an interview with Todd Pruitt the other day, and part of my interview is I had to figure out how to record the audio coming through the computer, and I was having problems with that. So in order to try to fix that, I restored uh, my computer to a sort of factory state, and I hadn't reinstalled that game yet. And what I found was that I didn't have the drive to play that game enough to take the time to reinstall it. And so after that happened, I found myself, I'm more productive. I feel less stressed out about the things I have to get done. And I don't really miss playing that game all that much. Like, yeah, it's a fun game. It's entertaining. But like, it was fun for a while. Now there's something else I'm going to move on to. But it's not like I'm sitting there going, oh, man, I really wish that I had reinstalled that game because I really want to play that game right now. I'm like, yeah, someday I'll probably reinstall and play it again. But right now I just don't care. So I think what the Lord is teaching me through that is that there are times where we just have to make a decision to take a step to eliminate something that isn't necessarily a sin or isn't necessarily drawing us away from God, but just maybe isn't the right thing at the right time. Like I, I probably should have uninstalled that game a long time ago because I felt like, man, this is really getting to be a bit of a productivity sink for me. I probably should have uninstalled it the minute I had that thought and I just resisted it. So I think the Lord has just been really teaching me through this. Like I should probably listen to my instincts a little bit more with some of these things. The Holy Spirit lives in me. He's he's sanctifying me and he's transforming me more and more into the image of the sun. And so I should trust my instincts when it comes to things like that a little bit, because contrary to most reformed people's thoughts, I don't think that total depravity is a reality for Christians anymore. Like there's a there's a corruption that persists even after a generation. But that that corruption is not throughout the whole man. It's not comprehensive like it was prior to regeneration. It still right. persists in all the parts. I get like there's confessional language to that. But but there's also a part of me that is regenerate and that is sanctified. That's already been renewed after the image of Christ, after the image in the whole man. So all of my faculties in part have been restored to what they should be. So I should learn to listen to my instincts a little bit more. Yeah. Amen. We, let's talk about that sometime, right? Yeah. You just basically kicked off what I would consider a whole nother podcast. So we should talk about degeneration and what Paul says about is no longer I who sin, but sin that lives in me. Cause right. I'm, I'm totally down with you on that. And I think that that's mainly the point here, at least as I'm trying to express it is 
These things can be restful. They are, in fact, restful. There is something liberating, though, from the Christian mindset when we can say, I'm just going to spend X amount of minutes doing this. Because I think everybody knows deep down when they've exceeded that line, when there is no boundary and it starts to become either harmful, hurtful, or just unwise. And so we should just be honest. I think that is a mature Christian perspective that can look at the good things that God has given us, like smartphones or video games or movies or Netflix and know when to say uh, enough is enough. Like I, I've done this, I've gotten it the most. I, I feel like this has one of those curves of like marginal decreasing or diminishing returns. Like you get to the point where it's the most restful, but few of us are able to stop at that point and say, all right, that's enough. I've looked at this for 10 minutes or I played for a half an hour and I have other things to do. And I know that this is enough refreshment so that I can go be empowered to go do those things. Exactly. And it's getting to that point and just being honest with ourselves, which the scripture pulls us into that place anyway, by saying like, these things will actually take your strength over time. They will leave you feeling beaten down yeah. and broken, even though you keep running to them to say, well, I need more of this because I feel like I need more rest when they're actually doing the opposite for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's as good of a way to end the show as any. So, Jesse. Tony. I'm excited to do this eschatology episode, uh, series with you because I think it's going to yeah, be really I'm helpful. Yeah, i about this. This is going to be great. Uh, es- eschatology is one of those areas that sometimes there's more heat than there is light. And uh, I'm hopeful that our series can be kind of a source to, of light to sort of, sort of show people the different views without necessarily being overly polemical. As am I. The summer of eschatology. <laughs> we should do like a legit movie trailer for this. Yeah, we do. That was my really lame, like narration movie the, voice. The summer, the summer of eschatology has commenced. <laughs> it was the summer of 2019, and there were two brothers who decided to engage in a discussion about eschatology. Is it fair to say, and this is my perspective, this is total recency bias because uh, Jen, as you know, my wife is at your recommendation, like diligently going through every Marvel movie. So they're just constantly playing now in my home. Yeah. I, I feel like the trailer would be in that kind of style. Is that yeah. fair? Maybe. I mean, the, the Marvel trailers are kind of revolutionary in terms of movie trailers. So, oh, but probably enough. not. There's not a lot of voiceovers in Marvel comic trailers. Wow. This has got really technical in a way. I didn't. It did. It did. We could start a whole <laughs> new show on this, but that's really more so like nerd gospel podcast category, even though they're another dormant group. But, you know, you know, she has about a week. And by my calculation, she could make it to where she needs to be for us to watch Infinity War at the beach. Man, she's a champ. I'm going to need her to take the rest of the week off work to do that. I don't know. Everybody's just getting like a really personal view into our lives and movie watching habits right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we always have like one. We always have like one group of movies that we watch ad infinitum during a like a break like last christmas or last midwinter whatever holiday it was a harry potter movies a couple summers ago it was like like jason Bourne movies so this is the summer of marvel all right i'm in let's do it there we go all right jesse well until next time honor everyone love the brotherhood